The following message is a presentation from Grace Baptist Church in Kettering, Ohio. I would like you to turn to Psalm 2. Now I'm going to do something which is rarely done. I have preached on Psalm 2 here before, and I'm going to then refer to Acts chapter 13, which pastor has preached on, part of it. But Psalm 2 is one of those passages which is so rich that it, it could take probably four or five messages to deal with it completely. I'm not going to go over what pastor has preached on. It's not necessary. Let's pray. Father, I ask for your power and your enablement tonight, and I pray that you would speak to our minds, our hearts, and our wills. May we understand the message that you've left to us in Psalm 2, and, it is, and that is explained to us in Acts chapter 13. May we apply it to our lives and our thinking. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 2 begins, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together with the Lord, against the Lord and against his anointed. Anointed is another word for Christ. Saying, Let us break their bands asunder, let us cast away their cords from us. We don't want God to tell us what to do. That's the calm way of saying, uh, that's the uh, rebellious way of saying what is calmly said here in, in Psalm 2. He that setteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Now, Jehovah God is not laughing at a joke. The word derision has to do with mocking, ridiculing, and scorning. That's the sense of this word derision. And if I could put it another way, you gotta be kidding. Now, how foolish is it for the nations of this world to rebel against the creator of the world. Now, I, I rather, I've heard picked up that the population of the world is around seven and a half billion or eight billion, I don't know, but let's suppose that the world has a population of, of 900 billion people, close to a trillion, or a trillion people. Would it make any difference if there were a trillion people in all the nations of the world with all the latest technology and all the atomic bombs and missiles and so forth, would that make any difference in their ability to rebel against God? No. Isaiah says that God knows the number of stars and he calls them all by name. He says that the nations of this world are like the fine dust of the balance. Now, we mentally 
agree. Uh, I think we're all in agreement here. But God is not amused. He takes the rebellion seriously. And what the nations are doing in mass, we as wicked, sinful in individuals are doing individually as sinful people. And it's one thing to say that the nations are stupid and futile and ridiculous for their rebellion against God. But if we put it on a personal basis, it's just as foolish for us to rebel against the statements of Scripture and say, I will not have God rule over me. The psalm continues, Then shall he speak to them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Now we have the voice of the Son saying what God the Father, Jehovah, has said to him. He says, I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now the next verse says, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. There's a song that we sing. The darkness shall turn to dawning, and the dawning to noonday sun, noonday bright, and Christ's great kingdom shall come to earth, and so forth. The Bible sets forth that the rapture will take place, there will be seven years of tribulation, and there will be then a final battle and the millennial reign of Christ. This psalm, or this hymn that we sing, with so much gusto, is really built on post-millennial theology. Am I right, Pastor? The kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is not going to come little by little by little. The world is not going to be converted little by little. In this psalm and in Revelation at the Battle of Armageddon, this is a calamitous total defeat, mega defeat of the nations of the world. There's not this gradual induction into the kingdom of God. He shall break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's not gradual. It's, it's going to be sudden. But that's not what I want to talk about tonight. Jehovah is obviously undeterred. He has issued a decree to the Son. A study of the decrees of God is certainly an enlightening thing, and I won't get into it tonight, but I'll just tip you off to that. He says, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. Let me ask you a question. What does it mean to be the Son of Jehovah? Second question, what does it mean for him to be begotten? You parents, you have begotten children. If he is the eternal God, what does it mean for him to be begotten? 
Doesn't, isn't that a contradiction? And thirdly, why is this important to us? Now, let me begin by answering the first question by saying that the Bible is a Jewish book. God spoke to Israel. He chose Israel as his own peculiar people, chosen people. He did not call the Afghans, the French, or the Bolivians to receive his word. He chose the nation of Israel. And in that context, he uh, his word was written down in the Hebrew language to begin with. Now this is important because every time we translate from one language to another, there is the possibility of not being able to completely convey the sense of what is being translated. Now, this is not a fault of the translators. It's a fault of the differences in the language. I hope you have the notes. Do you have notes? Okay, take a look at your notes. I want to ask a question. Who was the father of Samuel? Anybody? Who is the father of, of Samuel? Pardon? Elkanah. Right, Elkanah, okay. Why does Eli, who was an old priest and not in any way genetically related to Samuel, why does he call him son twice in, in, in 1 Samuel uh, 3.6, I think it's in your notes, and in 16, why does he call him son? Now, I, I'm going over some things that I have taught in Sunday school class. And so for some, this might be a review. But how can Samuel call, or how can Eli call Samuel his son? Well, the answer is that the word son in the Hebrew language is greater than our son in the sense of being born of a father and mother. In this case, it is a term of endearment. Do you remember God spoke to Samuel, and Samuel thought it was Eli. He runs to Eli, and Eli sends him back. And he addresses him as his son. And that Eli eventually realizes that, that God is talking to young Samuel. So son, in this instance, is a term of endearment. It's not a, a, a term that relates to a descendant, uh, being a descendant or being the son of, of Eli. If you open your Bible to Matthew, to Matthew 1, 1, you will find that Jesus is both the son of, of Abraham and the son of David. Now, how can this be? Abraham lived or was born about 2166 B.C., 2100 years before Christ was born. 
1100 years, about 1100 years go by, and David reigns from about uh, 910 to 970 BC. So he's about a thousand years, 900 some years uh, before Jesus is born. So how can how can the Lord, how can Jesus Christ be the son of Abraham and the son of, of David? Well, the answer to that is that the, the Jewish word son includes descendancy. In other words, Dave, uh, Jesus Christ is a descendant of both Abraham and David. Now, uh, think of that. What was going on in our country 2100 in, in the geographical confines of the United States. What was going on 2100 years ago? Do we have any genealogical records? Well, what was going on in our country, in our, the ge geography of the United States, a thousand years ago? Do we have any genealogical records? Now, this is amazing that the genealogy of Christ has been preserved through all sorts of horrendous events in the life of the Jewish nation. The late, latest, the, the, the most recent, recent one being the uh, absolute destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in, 580, uh, in 586 BC when Israel is carried into Babylonian captivity. God miraculously preserved those, the records of the nation. Son can refer to descendancy as well as endearment. In Mark chapter 2, and there's a, a, an account in Matthew and Luke as well, there is the story of some men that brought a man to Jesus. They couldn't get into the house, so they walked up on the roof, and they dug up the tile, and they let... Jesus, let this, this paralyzed man down in front of Jesus for Jesus to heal him. Jesus sees their faith, and he says to the man, Son, thy sin be forgiven thee. And the, the scribes and Pharisees are in a toot because they're thinking, Oh, this man blasphemes. Who can forgive sin but God? Now, that's a pretty good question. Even though it comes from, from wicked people, it's still a pretty good question. Mary can't forgive sin. Buddha can't forgive sin. Uh, on and on, name it, no one can forgive sin but God alone. And so he knows <laughs> it must have been rather unsettling to realize that their minds are being read by the Lord. <laughs> now, Psalm 139 says, he, knows, he knoweth our thought afar off. He understands our thought afar off. Wow. Uh, anybody here want their thoughts to be <laughs> spread, <apart>? spread all over? <laughs> but our thoughts are before God. That ought to both terrify and bless us. Then Jesus says, I did this because I wanted you to know that the Son of Man 
is able to forgive sin. I'm not too smart, but, and I'm not a doctor, and I don't play one on TV, but when's the last time that you heard of a man having a child? Huh? It doesn't happen. So how, what does Jesus mean when he says he is the son of man? In this case, sonship can mean likeness. Now, the Bible picks up on that, on that idea. In Philippians 2.7, Christ made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Pastor, you preached on 2nd uh, uh, and 3rd John, dealing with the humanity of Christ and how that people that deny the true humanity of Christ are antichrist. Jesus was completely man. In Colossians 1.15, he's also completely God. He is the image of the invisible God. In Colossians 2.9, in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jehovah's Son was the likeness of his Father of the same substance as that Saint Athanasius declared in the fourth century when he was fighting against Arius, who denied the deity of Christ. If Christ is then, which he is, the Son of Jehovah, the Son of God, how can he be begotten? Psalm 91 or 90 says, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. God doesn't start and he doesn't end. And if Christ is God, how can he be begotten? Uh, I have been told, and I, I, I have not had this happen to me, but I've been told that Muslims will mockingly say, well, did God have a wife? One very bad translation reads, and I have the translation in my in my office, thou art my son, uh, today I have become your father. Now what is the implication of that? The implication is, is that there was a time when Christ was not and when Christ started to be. That denies his eternal nature, it denies his deity. Well, how do we explain this? Jesus Christ is called the firstborn of every creature. And some will say, ah, he was a created being. He was created first before everybody else. I want you to turn to Acts 13, 14. And we're going to go now and spend some time in the uh, book of Acts. Apostle Paul is on his uh, first missionary journey. He is in Antioch of Pisidia, which is Antioch in south-central Turkey. 
There's another Antioch in Syria. He's been sent by the church in Antioch of Syria. He's gone through Cyprus. He's now up into Turkey. And he immediately goes to the synagogue where there were always a collection of Jews on the Sabbath day. And in verses 14 down through uh, 20, uh, 29, he deals with the history of Israel up until the time that Christ was put to death. It's a very nice, quick synopsis of Israel's history. I am sure that he endeared himself to the congregation of Jewish people so that he could talk to them about Jesus Christ. Look at verse 30. He then makes a turn. He talks about the death of Christ, then he says, but God raised him from the dead. Now his overall purpose is to show that Jesus Christ is God's promised Messiah and Savior. That is his purpose. It's interesting to compare the presentation of Paul to these Jews and how he presents the gospel in Acts uh, 17 on Mars, on Mars Hill. I think it's Acts 17. He has a completely different audience. And when, when we witness, we must take into account that for the most part, the people we talk to know almost zero about the scriptures. We wouldn't normally talk to someone the way Paul talked to these Jews. Look what he says in verse, follow me now as I read, in verse 31, and he was seen many days, or Jesus Christ was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which God made to the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same promise to us their children, in that he raised up Jesus again. Now, continue to read and tell me, where is this promise made to Israel of the of the resurrection of Christ. The re he talks about the resurrection in verse 30, but where is the promise in the Old Testament that, that the Messiah, Christ, would rise from the dead? Where is it? Where? Psalm 2. What verse in Psalm 2? Psalm, uh, Psalm 2, verse 7. When we read, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, he's talking, Paul says that that is a prophecy of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not what the bad translation says, This day have I begotten thee, this day have, have you come into existence. That is totally wrong. The Bible often interprets itself. 
And so we must accept what the Bible says, not what we would like it to say or think it to say. Revelation, uh, or Psalm, Psalm 2-7, is that of a future event. Again, here's an example of where the Hebrew language and the English language kind of don't mesh. But the Hebrew language has a tense called the perfect. And it carries the idea that there's an event in the future that is so certain to take place that I can speak of it as a, in the past tense. Uh, for example, I turn the water on next year. Can I guarantee that next year I'm going to turn the water on my hose next year? I can't guarantee that. In fact, I can't guarantee that I'm going to be alive long enough to finish the message. But the, the language, the, the, the verb tense, is that tense. It's, a, it's called a Kelperfect. And it views the resurrection of Christ as already a done deal a thousand years before it took place. Revelation 1.5 refers to Jesus Christ as the first begotten of the dead. It's a reference. It is not a reference to the creation of Jesus Christ, the creator. It's a reference to his being, if, if we can put it like this, being born from the dead. Well, what about the language of Colossians 1.15, where Christ is the firstborn of every creature? Sounds as if that he was created first. The idea of firstborn indicates two things. First of all, priority in terms of, in, in terms of his existence before time was created. Have you ever tried to think of what nothing is like? If you say that nothing is black, you've already assigned something to nothing. How, uh, what, does, what does nothing look like? Well, the only thing that existed before the creation was God in heaven and the angels that he had made. Out of nothing, nothing can come. It talks, this uh, firstborn is, carries the idea of priority, existence beforehand, not of creation. Secondly, firstborn indicates the priority of his, of his person, his importance. His rank is like that of a Jewish firstborn son. In the Old Testament, who was favored over all of his brothers because of his birth order. Do you remember in the Old Testament, Joseph was given a coat of many colors. Reuben was the firstborn, but Reuben raped one of his father's concubines and therefore lost the right of being the firstborn, and it was bestowed upon Joseph. You can read about it in 1 Chronicles, I think, chapter 5, verse 2. It just it mentions it, but it's... It's recounted earlier in Genesis. Joseph 
was the fair-haired child. His, his brothers resented his, his status. And you know the story. I won't go into it. So firstborn indicates not only existence before time was created, but firstborn indicates importance in his rank. Now let me ask the last question. Why is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ important to us? First, if you will look in verse 33 there in, in Acts 13, it's important because God fulfilled a promise. What if God did not fulfill his promise? There's, there's, one, thing that, that, uh, there's one thing that God can't do. God cannot lie. Now, there's a difference between saying that God doesn't lie and cannot lie, the difference being that he, he has no capacity to lie. And if God did not fulfill this promise in, Tom, in Psalm 2-7, God would be a liar. The fulfillment of this promise tells us that God is in control of time and events, not only what happens, but when they happen. So we read in Galatians that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. God chose the time, and when the time was right, he sent his Son. Israel waited a thousand years for God to fulfill his promise, but he did. And we are currently waiting about 2,000 years since God, Jesus Christ, promised to come again. Now, if he blew it on the first one, how can we be certain that he's going to fulfill the second one? His credibility has not been, has not been questioned, is not in question. We've waited 2,000 years for the promise of, of his return. Now, let me say something here. We must not give up praying for George Adika, for Chris Beals, and for Mark Manetti. We don't know what kind of circumstances God is going to bring into their lives that's going to cause them to take stock and say, I need to trust Christ as my Savior. I, I pray for these men. As the family of God in this place, we ought to pray for these men because God is in control of time and circumstances. And our problem is, is that, you know, Lord, give me patience right now. We must pray for these men knowing that God is in sovereign control of time and circumstances. The second thing, and not only is God truthful, but the second thing in verse 34, 
The Lord's bodily resurrection allows God's mercy to be shown to David and to Israel. Look in verse 34. And as concerning he raised, up, raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. Return to corruption means that he, he did not, his body did not decay. And that's brought out more a little bit farther down with a quotation from Psalm 1610. I will not suffer thy holy one, thou wilt not suffer thy holy one to see corruption. And that's from Psalm 1610. But he goes on to say, I will give you the <coughs> he he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he, he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, when he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. His body did not rise. He did not rise spiritually. He arose, he arose physically. I have, to, I, I have to try to put myself watching the disciples on the night of the resurrection when he appeared to them. The doors are locked. Thomas is not there. Uh, I think they were scared spitless. And, and he says, he says, give me a fish and some, and they give him some fish and honeycomb, and he eats it. And then he says, I'm not a spirit. A spirit does not have flesh and bones like you see that I have. I am not a spirit. The Bible refers to his body as a glorified body fit for residence in the spiritual realm. Your body and my body right now is not fit for that. Now, what's he talking about? He goes on and he quotes in verse, let me find it here. God has raised him up, uh, let's see. In verse, uh, let's see, 34 here. Okay. The sure, uh, sure mercy is David. Verse 36. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep. But he whom God raised up, what's he talking about here? What did God promise to David? Well, there's a, a quote here uh, in verse 34, I will give you the sure mercies of David. What are the sure mercies of David? In, in 2 Samuel chapter, chapter 11, uh, my I'm forgetting right at the moment. God said to David, David, I promise you that you will never lack a person to, from your lineage to sit on the throne of David. In Isaiah 53, we read that the Lord Jesus is a root out of dry ground. This has puzzled me for years, and it finally, it finally dawned on me that by the time Christ came, there was no independent Jewish nation ruled by a descendant of David. The nation was, was ruled by the Romans. God had promised that a, a descendant of, of David would always be around to 
rule the nation. Yet there wasn't a nation, there wasn't even a, a, a line of David other than in the genealogies. Now, just consider this. What are the two great sins of David? Well, well, actually three. What about his sin with Bathsheba that, that, that involves adultery and, and the murder of, of her husband, Uriah? There's two. Later on, he numbers the people. And 70,000 people of Israel are put to death. Pastor, a couple of weeks ago, you were, I don't know, a week or two ago, you were talking about the forgiveness of God. God did not say to David, all right, since you're such a, such a, such a, such a wicked man, uh, I've had it with you. I am withdrawing what I said I would do. I'm done with you. This is it. He does not say to the Jewish nation, look, you sacrifice to idols. You sacrifice your children to idols. Uh, you uh, made, uh, made whoopee with the nations. God says, I'm going to forgive you. And my promise to David stands sure because I want you to rejoice in my mercy and my grace and my love. What that says to us is there's, there's, there's not a person on the face of this earth that has ever been that is outside of the grace of God. That promise to David is renewed in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, 300 years later. It's... Uh, um, it's renewed again to, to Mary when the angel Gabriel comes to her and says, "Of the house and the he shall rule over the house and lineage of David." God kept His promise to Israel because without a king to rule Israel, if Christ had not risen from the dead, there would be no king to rule over Israel. There would be no millennial reign of Christ. We would have no certainty of ruling and reigning with Christ, as we are told in Scripture. Third, the Lord's bodily. Oh, let me just mention one more thing. Can anybody tell me of a country that doesn't have a swamp? I, you know, where there's corruption in government. Is there any country on earth where there is no swamp? Uh, Mary, Kenya doesn't have any corruption in their government, do they? Oh, no. Some time ago, the, the guy that was investigating corruption resigned because everybody was blocking him. I, I don't remember what the fellow's name was. Uh, I mean, foreign aid goes right back here. I will tell you that, having been in a few foreign countries. Listen, the millennial reign of Christ is going to be a reign of righteousness. And there will be no swamp, not in America, not in any other country around the world, because he will rule with a rod of iron. And, and a week ago, I think we are reading through the, the churches, and that seems to be communicated to those that will be reigning with him. So you and I, 
as rulers in the millennium are going are to rule with a rod of iron. We won't be bought off because we will be righteous. And we will see to it that his kingdom is ruled with integrity, honesty, and righteousness. The third reason this is important is that the Lord's bodily resurrection provides for our justification. Look at verses 37 through 39. Be it known unto you, uh, uh, verse 37, but he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that though this man is preached, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. He connects the resurrection with forgiveness of sin. Verse 39, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. There is not one person that lived under the law, though they obeyed the law, that was ever justified from their sins. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth are said to be just. That is, they did all that the law proclaimed. Paul says of himself, he said, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. I was, <laughs> to put another way, Paul said he was so strict that he is so tight that he squeaked. But he says, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. And whether a person tries to earn their forgiveness through the law or earn it through uh, helping old ladies across the street, <laughs> forget it, guys. Don't help old ladies across the street. <laughs> we don't have any old ladies here so it probably doesn't mean anything. But uh, there was complete justification. What do we mean? The penalty of sin is death. Christ died. He took the penalty. The charges against me and against you who believe in Jesus Christ are no longer re uh, uh, valid. God, as a judge, can look at us and say, I don't see anything against Wayne Snyder. Do you think that I have been perfect? Wife, make sure you say that I've been perfect. Of course she would be lying to say that. The resurrection, in, in Romans chapter 3, we read that God has set forth Christ to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. The resurrection shows death, the penalty for sin, has been paid. So, in a very common language thing, we are off the hook. The fourth important thing about the resurrection of Christ is that his bodily resurrection guarantees our bodily resurrection. In my first church, I pastored a small town in Russell, Iowa, and 
one day we had, on occasion, we had a Memorial Day service over in the cemetery. And I walked around through the gravestones, and there's a gravestone there. I don't remember the man's name. I don't remember his rank. But he was a naval aviator, and the, the, the tombstone read, lost at sea in 1943. Now his body has long since dissolved in the ocean. When we were in the Philippines, a week before we came home, we had opportunity to do some sightseeing in Manila, and we went over to the Philippine American Cemetery. At the time that it was made, it was out in the outskirts of Manila. Manila surrounds it now. And here, in row after row after row, are crosses or Jewish stars of the men that are buried there. Then around the outside of it, there's a walk that has columns for, for every state in the Union and uh, every, um, every branch of service, the Air Force, the Army Air Force, the Army, uh, the Navy, the Marines, uh, the Coast Guard. Uh, I don't know if there's uh, more, uh, more than that there. But on these walls that are probably 12 feet high, there are the names of all the men who died in World War II. I read a book just recently about a Japanese suicide kamikaze pilot that flew into one of our carriers and killed something like 300 men. They were all buried at sea. Hundreds of men have been buried at sea. I don't know how many of those men were Christians. Maybe none, maybe 10, I don't know how many. But they were buried at sea. Hundreds, if not thousands, of our men were buried at sea. But someday, the trump is going to sound, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. Without the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have no hope. We read in Philippians 3.21 of Christ who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working wherewith whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. I assume that most, if not all of you, are, are saved. Jesus said to Nicodemus, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus was as straight as they come. He was religious. But he didn't know that he needed to be born again. If you're here tonight and you're not born again, you're going to miss out on the benefits that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has provided for those of us that believe him.
Thank you for listening today. For more information about Grace Baptist Church, please visit our website at gracebaptistofkettering.org. And remember, you are always welcome at Grace Baptist Church.